How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting podcast. We have a very, very exciting uh, show for you today because we're going to be going over some specific hypertrophy questions. I know you guys love learning about muscle hypertrophy, how to grow your muscles best. We have Mike Isretel on the show, and this is going to be a special show because Mike is actually joining us in the UK again in London at the end of May, so the 27th and 28th of May, and we will be selling tickets at the end of March. So if you want to get in on those tickets, I'm going to put in a link in the description box below so you can sign up to our email list, get on there, you'll get the cheapest available tickets and you'll get access to the VIP tickets where we'll actually be able to get into a gym and train with Mike, which will be invaluable, uh, not just because you'll be enjoying training with Mike and he can, uh, he can push you to your limits, but the fact you can actually like associate with 10 other very, very, very well educated and hardworking individuals who want to be in the gym with Mike as well. And you'll be with Mike and you can actually go and say hello and kind of talk shop for a good amount of time. But without further ado, we will get into the questions. And actually, let's just, how, how are you doing, Mike? Let's just hear how you're doing. Meh, I'm uh, dieting right now for um, probably a show if I get in good enough shape. Um, and I'm very, very much on schedule. I'm looking pretty close to my all-time best, probably a little better than that. Um, and I'm uh, about uh, eight weeks out, seven and a half weeks out. So definitely a good place to be. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's uh, I'm not so much reducing food from here. Uh, for Well, I will be reducing food later, but the food intake is already kind of like, meh, it's not a terrible, but it's not great the volume of work and cardio and stuff like that is pretty intense. So all that combines the usual, but I'm hanging in there. So I should be able to think somewhat today for some <laughs> questions and answers. So yeah, guys, if, if uh, Mike doesn't seem as chirpy as usual, give him a break because he's eight weeks out, which if anyone's ever been eight weeks out, it's tough. Um, I'm dieting right now, but I'm in a deload and diet break. So I should be a much more chirpier, but I'm on a caffeine deload at the moment as well. So I'm, <laughs> I might not be sounding as chirpy as usual. Uh, but we're, we're going to stay right into the question. So we've got um, Justine has asked quite an interesting question about biofeedback, like toe touching, things like that. I don't know if you've heard of the toe touch test for like biofeedback, how kind of flexible you are and whether or not you should do certain movements um, and whether or not it's a useful tool in general or to kind of determine your MEV or MRV spectrum that you're kind of working with within. Um, have you ever used any biofeedback tools? Um, someone else has also asked about heart rate variability and whether that's useful um, for kind of relating to how, what volume and how recovered you are and things like that, Mike. Yeah, totally. That kind of stuff, basically, um, so the, the flexibility tests uh, probably test basal sympathetic muscle tone so when your sympathetic nervous system is very overactive, as tends to result as fatigue increases, 
And your parasympathetic is very inactive. You're obviously, by definition, not engaging the part of the nervous system that potentiates recovery the most. And one of the side effects of that seems to be a reduction in short-term flexibility. Um, it's when uh, people say, you know, they're warming up for a lift and they say they still feel super tight. Um, and uh, one of those, you know, results partially is increasing injury risk, but it's really telling you something else. It's saying that you're getting pretty pretty high level of accumulated fatigue. Heart rate variability, and we just, uh, uh, James Hoffman and I, uh, we're actually back on uh, back on track writing the recovery book, which should be out this summer. Brilliant. We like to we like to yeah we like to refer to the just heart rate variables in general because you can you can measure a couple of things about the heart uh, resting heart rate morning resting heart rate post exercise heart rate heart rate variability um, they do indicate uh, they do relate to total body fatigue the problem with both of those tests and heart rate variability more so is that uh, a lot of other things factor in there so you have to get a really good reliable baseline and especially with heart rate stuff that stuff only becomes noticeably and clearly off when you're already really, really, really fatigued. So I would say they're useful uh, factors, but other factors are probably more useful and should be used in conjunction. For example, an easy one is bar weight feeling. <laughs> How heavy does the bar feel of normal weights? If 225 feels, or sorry, you know, if 100 kilos feels like 200, boy, you know, you're overreached and you don't need a heart rate to tell you anything other than that. Another one is the kind of performance you're getting. If your repetitions and sets and reps are keep going up and everything's fine, you're obviously not under-recovered. But if you start to stall in performance, and especially if you're unable to repeat past performances, then you know you're screwed over. On the way to that happening, you know, your general malaise and just general sense of disease and desire of training will go down. And I think those things, bar rate feeling, desire to train, and performance usually outrank in just validity and reliability, the other more advanced variables. The other very, very advanced variables seem very sciencey. But if you're keeping track of bar weight feeling, strength um, in the movements, uh, and if you're keeping track of training desire, then a lot of the times when you do like the sit and reach test or something, and it says you're fatigued, you, your first uh, kind of thought on that is going to be like, well, no shit. Uh, it's very rarely that that test will pick something up before all the other factors come into play. And because you train hard anyway, and because you're always in tune with your desire to train, um, you can tell that stuff without adding anything to your monitoring program. So a big part of uh, being economical with your training time and your investment in this process is using fatigue indicators of stuff that you normally pay attention to anyway. Instead of slapping something else on, you have to do more of something else to get some kind of esoteric value out of it. So like heart rate variability. You can track that. It takes an app. It takes sitting around for a while to get a good resting heart rate. It's kind of a pain in the ass. Now, is it worth it? I mean, to get good results, yes. But it, can you use other stuff you track anyway, like desire to train, how heavy the bar feels, and how many reps you're getting? I mean, you can't avoid those. They're there anyway, right? They're, the desire to train is just referentially available for you whenever you want to think about it. And if you're training regularly, all the other variables are available every weight room day. So why layer on another additive variable if you don't have that? The benefits of those other variables are particularly for strength conditioning applications when you're training entire teams of individuals. Then you need a standardized measurement. That they can't subjectively you don't want a lot of subjectivity you want more objective measures heart rate variability is objective it's just clearly defined 
um, and flexibility measurements are clearly defined. And, and then you don't have to trust your athletes. They're, they're trying to impress you with how not fatigued they are or trying to lie to you about how really fatigued they are because they kind of learn fatigued. Then you give them deloads, which they like. And if you know the opposite, et cetera, et cetera. So I think for team sports, et cetera, that kind of thing is very indispensable by strength or sports scientist. For individuals, especially those in bodybuilding training, I think they're uh, the, the best term would be superfluous uh, in many cases, redundant. Cool. No, I think that's really interesting because I think there's a lot of allure to those sort of methods because people think they're going to be really kind of, I don't know, it's like another gadget that you can use to advance your training. Um, but I guess if people can relate it to kind of testing your body fat or looking in the mirror to what body fat you are, kind of you're spending a lot more money kind of going and getting an actual kind of DEXA scan or something that might not be 100% accurate. Well, it's not 100% accurate. We know that. Whereas you can look in the mirror and kind of absolutely estimate. Cool. Yeah. And, and with a DEXA scan, et cetera, it's something you might want to do every three months or so to get some good baselines. But, you know, every week, <laughs> just look in the mirror. It's going to tell you everything you need to know. Awesome. Um, really, really well explained. And I think that will give a lot of people food for thought and it, it will really help because that's given some real direct tools that people can just think about, look at your performance, how are you doing, how are you feeling? Um, and that will kind of guide when you're in the gym as well. So uh, we're going to the next question, which is potentially quite a big topic. And uh, Roberto Riccardiella, who you might have come across on Facebook, I think he's had some discussions with you on Facebook, or at least he was saying he did. Um, and he asked a lot of questions about kind of the uh, resensitization phase, the period of time where you have accumulated, well, for yourself, accumulated so much volume, you come to a period of time where you decrease volumes, focus on strength training, and kind of maintain weight. Um, and he kind of talked about, is what really happening there just a detraining effect? And so when you come into hypertrophy training again, you kind of gain back the muscle that you'd lost because you went into that period of time um, or could you just go into a, like a lower volume hypertrophy block and let fatigue dissipate via that rather than going to a really low volume strength block? I think in a way it's kind of just trying to hear your real thoughts and reasonings behind kind of the resensitization block to dissipate fatigue and just wants to learn more about it. So if you kind of go over it, maybe I'll be able to have some questions as you go through it. Sure. So just to address the first uh, question, no, it's not a detraining effect mean that we'd have to lose the underlying muscle tissue that we gained this detraining the hypertrophy you don't actually lose size on a maintenance phase because you're training in what we I, i've determined you know what i'm calling maintenance volume the amount of training it takes to maintain your gains and there's a really really cool fact about the body and about most physiological adaptive systems New adaptations are very difficult to make. You have to present overload consistently. You have to go outside of your comfort zone. It's unsustainable training that way. But old adaptations you already have are incredibly easy to keep. So for example, if you want to learn to speak French, um, French girls, mate, you know what I mean? Anyway, <laughs> so you want to learn to speak French, how difficult is it going to be to learn to speak French? Holy crap. You have to go live in France for like a year, total immersion, a bunch of classes, speaking to everyone you can, talking all the time, listening to tapes, watching movies. And then after a year, you can probably learn to speak French pretty well. Second question. 
how hard is it to keep working understanding of French that within one or two weeks you can be back to your best ever French? Um, you might watch like one or two French movies a week, speak to like two people for an hour at a time per week, and be as good at French as you ever were. In fact, and actually continue to get better. So, you could say that's common sense, but a lot of people, the things they say and the things they think, it doesn't seem to be as commonsensical because a lot of people will say, and there's this kind of myth about athletes, um, that, you know, if I don't train my hardest, I lose my gains. And, and that's not true. What, what's true is if you don't train your hardest and you're very advanced, you're just not going to make any more gains. But losing gains is very different from not making gains. So there's this volume right here that if you go, uh, you know, anything lower than that volume, you're no longer making gains. But the volume for losing gains doesn't start right here. It starts right here. There's this whole thing in between where you can train just hard enough, and it's not very hard at all. You don't lose muscle. Your, your body doesn't have the propensity to lose adaptations very well that it's gained and especially that it's kept for a while. So, uh, you know, for example, I learned Russian up until I was age seven, and I talked to my parents maybe twice a week. I talked to a couple friends, maybe. For, so I speak a sum total of probably 30 minutes of Russian uh, every week. Uh, my Russian is as good as it ever was. Uh, definitely as good as when I was seven years old, maybe in some ways better. So uh, the same, now that's a much more powerful language because neur neural systems, et cetera, are involved. But it's been very clearly shown that very similar things occur with muscle. And uh, periodization is actually based on this for strength sports is based on this fact. Go through a hypertrophy or work capacity phase and you build a lot of muscle. When you transition to what's called a strength phase, you don't lose muscle. It's very common knowledge in the periodization world that you don't lose muscle doing sets of five, that muscle that you gain doing sets of 10, for example, even though the volume is arguably sometimes half or even less, keep it. However, that reduction in volume means you're no longer presenting super high volumes and super high stimuli. It means you're not overloading all the time on the volume end and the metabolite end like you used to be. Systems that have been overloaded and producing gains for you because of overloading. After you overload them for long enough, they adapt less and less and less until you could keep overloading them all you want and they basically stay about the same. Is we're taking that stimulus and we're having it at least. It's enough to keep you at the same size. So don't be, don't be illusioned to think maintenance volume is going to get you jacked. It's by definition not going to do shit for you. But after a month or two of really low volumes, You've kept all of your muscle, but your body has so long gone without any actual really good stimulus and overload that all of the mechanisms designed to resist further adaptation, maybe not all, most of them have kind of been wiped clean. The clock has been set back. So it's kind of like, um, oh, I don't know. I was going to make an, an analogy with food. I'm not really sure if it's correct. But uh, I guess if you eat the same meals every day for a couple of weeks, you get really sick of them. But if you go another couple of weeks without eating those meals at all, eating other meals, it doesn't really matter how sick of them you got at first. You're back to being excited about them if, you, if it was food you like to begin with. Like I think we've all had like, 
you know, you finish your cutting phase and you start cheating a little bit and you have pizza all the time, pizza, pizza, pizza. And then after a while, people are like, hey, you want to go out for pizza? And you're like, ah, maybe something else. You take a couple of weeks off of pizza, you want pizza again. So these adaptive systems work in pretty much every regard. And the big key there is there's a very big difference between pushing the pace and maintaining. When you're maintaining, you're not really getting better at anything. But the fact that you're not getting better means you're not using the systems that make you better. We're intentionally keeping them dormant. And when they're dormant, when they're not being activated, they lose their adaptive resistance. When their adaptive resistance falls low enough, we start cranking them again and getting gains. So I would say the best analogy or the best kind of little metaphor uh, or a little like <laughs> statement about this process is you take one step forward or, or three steps forward rather and then you stop for a bit. You don't take any steps back. Then you take three steps forward and you stop. I actually have a really good analogy for this one. Imagine you're on a long hike through the, you know, the Norwegian wilderness or something like that. You're a 50-mile hike. You have tents and gear, and it's summertime, so you're not going to freeze to death. But you got all your gear with you, and you and your friends are going for, for a 75-kilometer you know, hike. And it's going to take you three days, right? When you stop and camp, you rest, you recover, you recuperate, and you become better at walking again after, right? Because otherwise you're going to eat your feet off your fucking body. Um, ground when you rest and set up camp. No, you're not fucking on a glacier that keeps moving back. I mean, unless you are, then you're fucked up. But um, if you just get to a waypoint that's 25 kilometers in, you stay there overnight. We can't say you took 25 kilometers forward and something back. You didn't go back at all. Did you make progress? No, but you did take that time to recover. That's how I would see a maintenance phase. So there's no reason to subsume that you're losing muscle. You're really not. And if you think you are, easy solution to that. Just give it one shot. Do three months of hypertrophy training. Do one month of maintenance. Because your muscles are not pumped and swollen from their damage, and because the volumes are so low, they're going to feel small. And you're going to be like, fuck. Dr. Rizzo lied to me. He's a cocksucker. Parts of that may very well be true, but I'm not lying. So next, what you're going to do is you're going to go back to hypertrophy training after a month, and you're going to be like, this fucker lied to me. About a week and a half in, when you get pumped and sore, you're going to look as good as you ever did. You're going to go, oh, my, oh my God. Uh, oops. It looks like it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> and then you're just going to make great gains after that for another three months. If you keep going, however, you're going to be in the situation where you're spinning your wheels. And here's the real big problem. Somebody like uh, uh, Jared Feather, who uses a bit more of the technical terminology when describing this to people, would say, we have a, uh, every time we present more of a stimulus, we get a rise in anabolic signaling pathways, something like mTOR. So mTOR gets hit more and more and more and more the more volume you do over the span of maybe three months. You know, deloads here and there, but on average up. The problem is, is that uh, catabolic regulators, something like AMP kinase, also get stimulated more and more as you go up. Now, at first... AMPK is here and mTOR is here or something, some similar kind of systems. And it goes like this, but AMPK eventually meets mTOR and eventually goes above it. So you can actually be in a, if you train for four months like a psychopath and you just keep training, at best, I think you're in a position where you're making very few gains or no gains at all, even though your training volume is super high. You're, so here's the deal. You're not making any gains, but you're not resting. So you're not preparing to make any future gains. You're fucking spinning your wheels. The only thing it's affording you is you can eat a bunch of calories because you burn a lot of calories with those crazy workouts. The problem is you're also damaging your joints and other tissues, etc. You're carrying chronic high levels of fatigue. That's how you get fucked up eventually and get hurt. The worst case 
which is very possible. I've actually done this to myself before. You train long enough, you actually start to lose muscle pretty slowly <laughs> because you're so high over your, uh, you end up being over your MRV, right? To put it in another technical term, your recovery capacity is right here, okay? For your recovery ability is right here for your MRV. And, you know, you start at your minimum effective volume, you know, beginning of the metal cycle, you go to your MRV and you come back down to minimum effective, you go to your MRV. Eventually, the amount of volume because of the adaptive resistance rising of these mechanisms that hypertrophy you eventually the amount of volume it's going to take to hypertrophy you is above your mrv it's theoretically completely out of reach for you so if you if you say okay last month i did an average of 15 sets for back this month an average of 20 next month it's going to take a, an average of 25 the month after it's going to take 30 but your mrv is 25 so what the fuck is that fourth month even for? You literally put yourself in such a position that your adaptive abilities are out of reach of your recovery abilities. So you have two choices. So you go see the local neighborhood steroid dealer behind GNC, get a bunch of drugs, fuck up your health, and just MRV is not really a thing anymore. Uh, it still is. I'm just joking, but it's higher, right? Like, I don't have to, uh, to worry about uh, sports science as much. Or you take a maintenance phase and get your MRV back to 15. Oh, I'm sorry, your MRV. <laughs> you get your what? 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 Your your M your MAV, right, maximum adaptive volume, back to around 15 sets. Mm -hmm. And then you can hit 15 sets again for a micro, uh, mesocycle average and grow, then 20 and grow, then 25 and grow, and then you can do that over and over again. So to put it in another technical way, your maximum adaptive volume falls during the maintenance phase. And that's a good thing because it's gotten so high that your MAV starts to push up and past your MRV. I mean, that fucking blows, right? Because... If your maximum adaptive volume is now theoretically above your maximum recoverable volume, it's literally impossible by definition for you to adapt at your fastest rates. And then here's the worst part. I'll, I'll put it in these uh, volume uh, landmarks again. Minimum effective volume goes above your MRV. That's what happens if you train for like five or six months. And then you legit cannot grow anymore. And the worst part is you get so resistant to training or to adaptations your maintenance volume can exceed your MRV because by this point, your fatigue is probably so high, your MRV is lower, right? So your MRV and maintenance volume pass each other up. You just literally lose muscle even though you're training 30 sets a week or something like that. Don't want to be in that position. There's two fundamental ways, three fundamental ways that people get around this. Two of them kind of fucking suck. One of them is the advocated intentional one month or so of low volume training. The first one, the worst by far is guys will fucking train, 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 train. They no longer get a lot of training. They start taking a bunch of drugs, 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 drugs. They uh, can't take any more drugs because their doctor's like, you're going to fucking die if you keep pushing that much trend. And they go, fuck. And they keep trying to train anyway. And then they get hurt. They come off a bunch of drugs. They lose a bunch of muscle. But since the myonuclear domain ceiling has already risen and uh, new nuclei have been assimilated, etc., they two, three months, they stay off all the drugs. They have a life change and start going to fucking church again or some shit like that. Um, they get off Facebook for a while. You know, like, hey, I'm off Facebook. It's too toxic. It's too muddy, fucking too terrible environment. And then, you know, they get the hunger back after two months. They come back. They start training again. They get bigger again. So they took, like, uh, instead of a maintenance phase, they took a fucking completely lost phase which is better than nothing, but it happened because they got hurt, right? So it's like a lot of guys will just train till they get hurt. Train till they get hurt, auto maintenance, right? And then the other way is guys will kind of, in, uh, they'll know they'll reach a point of kind of a more of an intuitive maintenance phase where they'll train, 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 and they just won't get pumps anymore. They won't get sore anymore. This is your, here's the thing. You can actually reduce your level of DOMS almost to zero if you push your training hard enough. 
us is in some ways connected to adaptation. Remember, high-level runners and cyclists who have huge activities of catabolic regulators, AMP kinase, and very low mTOR activities, they don't get delayed onset muscle soreness. They get a different diffuse kind of soreness in bones, joints, and muscles. It's not that really hard kind of soreness, that really immobilizing soreness that lasts for a couple of days and then goes away completely. It's kind of like a perma-soreness. You start getting that instead of delayed onset muscle soreness. I'm not sure if you've ever been there yourself, Steve, but like you do pec flies and do bench, and in the next day your pecs are just kind of like, ah, fuck. I don't know what happened. They never got pumped. They actually look smaller the day after because they're depleted of glycogen, and there's not that painful, awesome soreness of like, fuck, I'm doing shit. I've definitely had start getting that. For sure, man. It's from probably doing too much work. I've had that before. And you get that, and then you get like a lack of pumps in the gym. Like you're there doing fucking sets of 10, and fucking dick is happening. And you're like, fuck this. And people will intuitively try different exercises, try to do the feel more, more of the squeeze, some lighter work, say my body needs a break. And somehow they end up intuitively training less. They get their adaptive proclivity back, and then they hit it hard again. You know, like, you barbells for a while, they fuck you up so bad that you're like, time for machines and literally squeezing isolation and doing body weight lunges. That shit is effective in its own merit to some extent, but it's just less of a stimulus, so you kind of get a break because the shit is that easy. Mm -hmm. That's the second way to do it. It's better than the first by a long shot. Some more advanced bodybuilders have been around for a while. They do the second method. The third method is probably more recent for a lot of people that aren't students of periodization is intentional, willful insertion of a maintenance phase into your mesocycle, uh, sorry, into your macrocycle structure. And that's a really good idea because you might not even feel like doing it, but it does the body a lot of good. Um, and you'll thank yourself. And every time, and here's the thing, I don't want to come off as high and mighty and all knowing and pedantic. I'm sure as fuck all knowing folks, I have all the same fears and bullshit little anxieties that all the resting motherfuckers do. For example, every time I take a maintenance phase, I feel like I'm losing my muscle. I freak out. I don't want to do it. I hate it. I start to like it a little later when I realize, oh, I don't have to eat around the clock anymore. And I don't have to watch a bunch of shit. I only have to train four times a week. It's amazing. I can relax. I can enjoy family and friends. But at the beginning, especially, I'm like, you know, like when your whole life's around training and eating and your diet consists of eat minimum of this much protein, everything else doesn't matter. And then your training is four times a week of just compound bullshit. And you're just like, well, fuck my, my purpose here. Like I literally had mm -hmm. like damn near existential crisis last time I went to maintenance <laughs> over the holiday break. I was like, I don't understand my own purpose in life. <laughs> and uh, so we, for sure, nobody fucking likes that shit. And and, and But you put it in place because you know it's good. And the way you know it's good is if you trust the science if it's your first time or you trust the science and you trust previous experience. I trust the science well and good. But what I do now is I think, how did I feel after my last maintenance phase that I took? Oh, wow. I had a revelation. I had a rebirth. And this time I reminded myself of that shit. Sure enough, just a month ago or like six weeks ago, I started training hard again. I finished my maintenance phase. I swear to God, like, oh, two weeks in, I was in the gym and I pulled my shirt off just a tank top with a pump and I was like, fuck. I was training at like two thirds of the volume I had been the last time I looked like that. I felt completely fatigue free. I felt incredible and damn near nothing at all was stimulating me and I was already at my biggest ever. And, and I know a bunch of my fat had gone away because I, you know, upped the training volume again. So you get a recomposition effect. That's how advanced people can get recomposition. So. As soon as you're done with the maintenance phase, I promise there is, pun intended, there's a renaissance there that occurs. Uh, there is a rebirth, and it's great every time. 
And remember that the dedicated athlete doesn't do what he feels like doing or what she feels like doing. They do what they must. And sometimes, for example, if you really think you're a fucking warrior, which kudos to you in some sense you very much are, does a warrior draw both of his swords and run into battle? And no matter how many people are coming at him, he fights everyone and potentially dies doing it? No. A warrior knows when a tactical retreat is necessary to rest, recover, maybe move around the enemy, and then fucking win. That's what warriors do. They win, right? And, and it would say, you know, a warrior, you know, somebody like, you know, so for example, like a real warrior would be someone that would pretend to be on the other side just to get the trust of their king to fucking stab him in his fucking sleep 80 times and win the fucking war. That's a real badass motherfucker. That's somebody who does what it takes. It'd be like, you know, other people, they come back winning for their kingdom and their fellow, you know, you know, knights and stuff would be like, what was it like to worship a king that wasn't yours and one you hated? You're like, it fucking blew. What do you think it was like? But I did what it fucking took. We won, didn't we? And be like, God damn, you really are a warrior. That's a fucking warrior. Everybody likes going to battle with their fucking swords drawn, stabbing people. That's fine. Uh, it can sometimes be uncomfortable. Sometimes a retreat is necessary. And to reiterate, a maintenance phase is not a retreat. It feels like one. It's just a break. It's just a break to hold your abilities. You don't lose them. It feels like you're losing them because your muscles deflate a little bit, but I promise that's not tissue. After you do that and the wave comes back in again, your training is the best as it's ever been again. You make all the great gains and you go, oh, okay, fuck, this is part of the process. Same, same logic with deload, same logic with rest days. And if you didn't like anything I said, Fuck you, seven days, team no days off, two a days, go grind yourself into the dirt. I'll fucking bring a rose to your funeral, but you'll be huge or whatever in the casket. That's all that matters. <laughs> um, so what you're saying is you revive stronger out the other side. That's what you were Man, saying. <laughs> I, couldn't have put it, I couldn't have put it better. <laughs> so actually, I'm glad you brought up the deload scenario because the kind of AMPK and mTOR kind of uh, relationship you're talking about very much related to, for me anyway, to the fitness fatigue model a lot of people know in that then when fatigue starts kind of going above your fitness and then you come into a deload, it's kind of like an extended deload in, in a sense. And I guess a question some people might have is would a deload not be long enough to dissipate the fatigue? So you have to actually go through like an extended period of time, like you said, a month. That's a really good question. To reduce the kinds of fatigue that build up over a week, you need light sessions or recovery sessions, and you need off days. It's on the same order of time scale. To recover from the kinds of fatigue that accumulate over a month, you need about a week, a deload, to reduce those. There are other kinds of fatigue, particularly one of them being general adaptive resistance to hypertrophy that take three or four months to rise. They take maybe a month to decline. So it's all proportional. We're reducing fatigue at every single time scale based on the kind of fatigue that it is. Now, there's definitely based on the kind of fatigue that it is. So a kind of fatigue you could say or a side effect of training for too long is a reduced reduction in adaptive resistance. Another kind is joint damage. 
you you know when your bones fragment and your joints get hurt in a micro micro tear fashion the shit doesn't heal after a week that's fucked up right uh, that takes a month which is another great benefit of the maintenance phase because of the low volume things recover much better and that you're literally for me by the time i got to my last maintenance phase i had like three fucking injuries like nothing fucking worked anymore but the combination of jiu-jitsu training and bodybuilding i was like a fucking uh, i was like a like a scarecrow or something I didn't even remember what injuries I had. Like, no joke. I was like, what the fuck was hurting my shoulder? I don't even know. You know, like, intuitively, you know what you hurt. Like, when it hurts, you're like, obviously, yeah. it's this. And then, like, a week later, it doesn't hurt. You're like, what was it that hurt? Was it back there? Was it? I don't even know, right? So there's all kinds of that stuff gets taken care of in the maintenance phase, adaptive resistance being one of those things. But I'm not saying all fatigue dissipates over a month. Oh, I'm sorry. All fatigue will dissipate over a month. But there's kinds of fatigue that dissipate at much shorter timescales. Thus, for example, you could call me on bullshit if I said, you know, that month is for glycogen repletion. Glycogen repletion doesn't take fucking month. Are you out of your fucking mind? And I would be, right? That just takes a couple of days, sometimes three to four days if you've been really fucking shit up. And that's what deloads are for. Deloads are to heal nervous system disruptions and abilities, uh, fatigue at that level, and a variety of other things. So at different timescales, we have different fatigue elements that are recovered. Uh, when the recovery book comes out, we have some articles on Juggernaut that talk about this pretty well. Uh, it's addressed in scientific principles of strength training to a pretty good extent and the fatigue management chapter. Um, but these different fatigue sorts and the timescales, were, were, I've already written this part of the recovery book. We, we beat it to death. It's like 30 pages of shit you never wanted to read uh, about hmm. different timescales and different particular sources of fatigue. is not technically fatigue, but it results as a byproduct of high levels of fatigue over a long time and just high levels of pushing the same pathways in the same exact way. Mm -hmm. And it has to be brought down. Am I confident that it's exactly a month? No. Do I think it's probably longer than a week or two? Yes. Do I think you need like two months every time? No. Although some people might in some circumstances. So a month is just a good general framework and you can see how it goes from there. Cool. And I think something that actually is really nice with that is it relates to kind of the refeeds, the kind of diet breaks, and then the maintenance yeah. phases for dieting as well. And as a Absolutely. lot of those associated kind of time scales relate really well. Absolutely. And on that note, I'd actually like to add something really quick. Um, one of our coaches at Renaissance has been going through this with a couple of clients, and it's very pertinent now, at least in my mind. Um, there is a value in receding from pushing your diet at all for some periods of time. And what I mean by is this. Yes, a mass phase is a welcome respite from a cutting phase. You get tons of food. It recovers a bunch of the psychology behind diet. What it does not recover is the meticulousness. Massing requires less meticulousness, but you still have goals. And the goals are fairly elaborate, and the goals are difficult. They're not self-fulfilling. But if you just eat whatever you want and just take in a minimum of protein, that's the easiest fucking thing in the world. Massing, it's like you don't want any more food, but you have to have it. If you did a workout and your friends are like, hey, you want to go to this party really quick? And you go, oh, yeah, I got to stop by and get food, though. It's an inconvenience. You have to think of things ahead of time in a more complex fashion. The bigger you get – and potentially, if you start using performance-enhancing drugs that interact with nutrients differently, insulin growth hormone, for example, uh, uh, your massing phase is just about as rigid as your cutting phase. And that's where the term clean eating largely still has huge weight in the bodybuilding community. When you're on growth hormone and insulin, you don't just eat pizza all the time. Um, really, really bad news would come of that. So the reality there 
is that drug-free or not, massing and cutting both accumulate psychological fatigue. They're both very purposeful, intricate endeavors. When you do a maintenance phase for your training and you drop your volume by a lot and just do basically strength training, a couple sets of five or six reps here and there, what you can do and what I highly recommend is setting yourself protein target for retention of lean mass, uh, you know, two grams per kilo or something like that, and calorie target. And a calorie target could be really rough. Just watch your body weight. Make sure it doesn't do anything crazy like falling or rising. And the rest of it, literally, just fundamentally stick to decent, healthy foods maybe half the time. The other half, just fuck off and eat whatever you want. So as long as you're getting the protein and your calories aren't wildly high or wildly low, fundamentals of healthy eating still apply, but then just whatever, right? On my last maintenance phase, I had a bunch of, you know, a diner food and snacks and cookies and this and that. As long as I had protein, I was good to go. What that does is, is it's a month. Will your physique suffer? Yes, it will. A tiny bit. You won't lose any muscle. You won't really gain a ton of fat, but you look a bit softer and stuff like that. Incredibly reversible within two weeks, for sure, at longest. But what it gives you is a month of breathing almost, you know, with protein accepted. And all, let's be honest, no one, not no one, an incredibly tiny number of people find, if they've been in the fitness industry for long enough, getting in enough protein is difficult. And if it is, just have a casein shake in the morning and another big casein shake at night and then eat whatever the fuck you want throughout the day and it doesn't matter anyway, right? But, you know, protein's tasty and there's burgers and shit like that you can eat. Protein and not fucking up your calories too much makes you yearn for controlled dieting later. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a psychological situation yourself, Steve, but you've been eating fuck all for so long that you're like, God, I can't wait to have structured, ordered, clean meals that make me feel purposeful. I don't want to be free anymore. <laughs> and that kind of stuff, it's like summer vacation from school. Good students in school, they don't want summer vacation to go on forever. You get to that point in like late August where you're like, what the fuck? Like, I can only play video games with my friends and climb on trees for so long. I, I want to do stuff, right? And school is, by, by the end of June or July or June or May or whatever, when school ends, nobody wants to be there. But at the beginning, people, people get excited for school because you're like, finally, some fucking structure in my life. Same idea. So I would recommend not only doing that maintenance phase for training, I would recommend that maintenance phase for dieting and really regressing back into just meeting protein needs and then not really worrying about a lot of stuff. Uh, Will that make you, if you were an alien machine that had no human desires or temptations or accumulated psychological uh, diet fatigue, would it be better that you just were rigid all the time? Of course, but you're not that. If you want a productive career in fitness, whatever your choice, powerlifting, weightlifting, bodybuilding, etc., if you every, literally two months out of the year, do less restricted eating, you're going to refresh yourself so much that when other people are talking about, oh my God, I can never diet again. The sight of broccoli makes me ill. I'm never going to restrict again. Fuck dieting. It's all like patriarchy and all this bullshit made me do it and fuck the scale. They're breaking scales. You're going to be like, hmm, I see where they're coming from, but I don't feel that bad about it because I've given myself these, uh, these occasional freedoms. So. No, yeah, I can totally relate. And I, I wanted to rip it out of you with the, uh, the, the school thing and just call you a nerd, but I, am, I completely relate to loving structure and routine and wanting kind of to advance. So, yeah, I, I was probably too good a student. That's why I can't rip it out of you. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
No, yeah, I love that. And I think the the psychological elements are really underrated and kind of people do get scared. But I think if you just kind of embrace it and that's the best thing that people can do in those sort of situations. But I think that answers that question really, really well, Mike. Unless you've got anything else to add, we can get to the next uh, one. Uh, yeah, I think I think that that's pretty much it. Awesome. Uh, so Ryan Solomon has asked, and this might have been uh, related kind of to the, well, actually it relates to everything we've talked about. Would it be practical to work from your MEV to your MRV as slowly as possible, potentially stretching mesocycles out to eight to 12 weeks long um, to spend more time training and overreaching? So you're kind of trying to stay in that maximum adaptive volume state for as long as possible. Great question. The answer is no. Here's why. The first reason we can't do that, or we shouldn't, is that, and I've stated this before every time I have a defined maximum adaptive volume, MRV is a number. It's a range, but it's a pretty tight range you can figure out for yourself. Minimum effective volume is also a pretty tight range. Maximum adaptive volume is almost like uh, the analogy would be is like a quantum concept. It's like Schrodinger's cat. You open up the box, there's no cat. You close the box, there's a cat. So the fuck you ever see the cat? You don't ever fucking see the cat. Same thing with maximum adaptive volume. What happens is it is, uh, you know, any volume you ever do, you've already adapted to. It is no longer your maximum adaptive volume. A meaningfully higher volume is... So every time, let's say you start out, you're pretty, uh, uh, not undertrained, but you're pretty fatigue reduced and you haven't done high volume training in a while. So you start out, your MEV is 10 sets per week and your MRV is 20 sets per week. When you just start out, okay, we can say your MAV is 15 sets a week average, but that's not your MAV. When you just start out with a new combination of exercises, sets and rep ranges, and you're very fatigue reduced, your maximum adaptive volume is probably between 10 and 12 sets per week. It's pretty low on that end. It's waiting for you. As soon as you hit it, you've adapted to it within that week, you need more. Overload applies. You should just repeat it that week. You'd get a little bit less adaptation, a little less, a little less, a little less. So if you repeated it for four weeks, after a while, it's your NEV again. <laughs> so it's minimum still. And eventually it'd be your maintenance volume if you kept that shit up for way, way long. So you hit it 10 to 12. The next week, your MAV has basically advanced as literally the adaptations are being made. Your, your MAV, maximum adaptive volume, has advanced to 12 to 14 sets. You hit 12 to 14 sets to try to chase it. Then it has advanced again next week, 16 to 18, blah, blah, blah. So your MEV actually, your MAV starts by your MEV and it floats up to your MRV. It eventually floats past it, but you can't follow it there. Does that make sense? So that's when you need to deload. But here's the critical factor. It jumps and you have to follow. If you don't follow fast enough, you're milking out suboptimal gains. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? So let's say you're, 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 you're still at around 10 sets per week, but your MAV has flirted away and it's at 15 sets per week. You're not at your MAV anymore. You may very well like to tell yourself you're there, but you're not getting the best gains. You're getting shitty gains at MAV gains, right? And, and, and so that by itself is a problem, right? So we need to follow it plain and simple to get the best gains. But you could say, now let's, let's just milk out each step. 
Okay, we start here at the MEV. It jumps right away, MEV does, but we'll jump with it and then milk it out until it doesn't do anything. We'll jump up again, milk it out, jump up again. That allows us to stretch our men's cycle out a lot. There's a problem with that. Accumulated fatigue still occurs. Even if you're training at your minimum effective volume, your fatigue over time goes up. It only doesn't go up if you train at your maintenance volume. Okay, but maintenance volume fatigue just goes like this. Matter of fact, if it was high, it falls and then stays flatline. Basically nothing. So at, even at your minimum effective volume, if because that means you are presenting an overload, fatigue is going to start to climb. And if you do, let's say you can do, uh, if, you're, if you're training at an average of your MAV, 15 sets a week, that amount of fatigue, of an average of 15 sets a week, maybe starting at 10 and ending at 20, lets you train for six weeks without uh, getting past your MRV, uh, too much accumulated fatigue. Uh, then maybe if you just stayed between 10 and 12 sets, it could give you 10 weeks of time. But then you have to ask another question. Okay, so, so it's not infinite, right? It's still only 10 weeks, and then after that, it climbed anywhere. Mm-hmm. Then you have to ask yourself, the time that I spent, was it worth staying this low? Because remember, yes, you can train for longer, but your adaptations suck more. And it probably doesn't balance out. So the, so the reality of the matter, because fatigue, and mark my words, fatigue always climbs when you're creating a meaningful stimulus. If you're presenting an overload, which by definition, MEV is that minimum overload required to disrupt homeostasis enough to get some gains, fatigue is accumulating, period. It mm-hmm. doesn't, every single biological structure ever, ever, ever discovered. So because you're above MEV, your fatigue is on the clock. And when fatigue is on the clock, right? you had better be using your time most productively, which means you should be jumping with MAV as it goes up and doing maybe a six-week accumulation as opposed to doing two terrible things. One, milking out the shit for as long as possible. You'll get fatigued and you'll have to quit anyway and you'll be like, well, what did I get all of this? Well, I trained for 10 weeks. How much gain did I get? Eh, not much. As a, or you know, you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to fuck shit up. Just go right to my MRV. You'll train for two weeks and you'll have to deload. And then you're taking too many deloads too often. So the situation there is because MAV is an adaptive value, because it jumps, you have to follow it. And because fatigue is running the clock anyway, you might as well follow it at its pace. Because if you try to go too slow, fatigue times you out anyway. It's almost like this. Um, if we go on a long road trip, we want to be most economical with gas. We want to get the furthest we can with our gas. Is it a good idea to leave a car in idle and go like three kilometers an hour down the road? No, because we'll fucking not get anywhere that way. Uh, and by the time we get somewhere that way, first of all, it'll take us forever to fucking get there. Other people will just pass us by. And by the way, they can take maintenance phases more often than us. So if it takes us 12 fucking weeks to do an accumulation phase, they could have done an eight-week baller-ass adaptation phase, four-week maintenance phase, on average gotten better results than us, and then restarted when mm-hmm. we're, we still need a maintenance phase after 12 weeks, right? Because we're still at the end of it, right? Uh, so it's like someone going 70 kilometers an hour or 100 kilometers an hour, going to a petrol station, actually getting refueled, and then going again at 100 kilometers an hour. Now, is it a good idea to go 140 an hour? Like, well, only if you have the right car for it, right? <laughs> but no, because it's too fast, you'll burn out. There's a risk of injury, blah, 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 etc. But we don't want to idle the fucking car and be under this illusion because remember, we're on the clock anyway. We're on the clock. Gas is still burning. Whether or not you burn it slow or fast, it still burns. You still have to go to the same refueling station, etc., etc., etc. So because of those constraints, I would say 
We don't, we want to resist the temptation to milk out the gains because what we really end up doing is we just never get close to our, to our MAV. You want to be able to tell yourself, oh, the ultimate mesocycle is one in which you hit your MAV every single time you train. So for the five weeks of accumulation, your MAV average is going to be 15 sets, but it turned out every time you trained, you basically trained your maximum adaptive volume. That's by definition the best gains. You can't do any better than that. Mm-hmm. No, I really like that because I think I, I think a lot of these questions actually and a lot of the, the topics that people got onto with muscle building is trying to avoid these periods of like not training or like deloading maintenance phases. They're trying to avoid these. But these are the same people that want maximum results. They want to train balls to the wall. But that by default doesn't really happen if they want to kind of get rid of these things because they're going to actually just eke out gains. And, it, and something that reminded me of this process is someone who maybe diets very, very slowly rather than doing it more assertively but under controlled and getting kind of the maximum amount of fat loss. Because, sure, they might have to break sooner. They might have to have a diet break sooner. But they're going to lose a lot more fat in a short period of time versus that person that just trickles along for a long, long period of time. Absolutely. And they're still having to break. Absolutely. Absolutely agreed. Cool. Um, have we got time for any more questions or should we get to the next lot in another time? Let's do one more. Perfect. Right. We've got one from Ruby Sheree who has asked about um, using kind of medium intensity steady state or low intensity steady state after training and she she said legs but just after training will that diminish hypertrophy i know we've kind of slightly talked about this before but yeah doing cardio after your weight training what's that impact yes it will reduce your gains um and let me be clear about that it will reduce your gains and not necessarily your current level of musculature you won't get smaller doing it unless you're very advanced but uh, you will not get as big as you could have gotten. After training, the nervous system signaling to the muscles has to be one of parasympathetic. It has to be one of rest for the muscles to prepare themselves to make the adaptations nervous system-wise that they were exposed to, strength adaptations, etc., and to prepare the muscle internally for uh, anabolic state. The biochemical activity of the muscle, AMPK versus mTOR, for example, needs to be predominantly anabolic in nature and not catabolic. And the nutritional environment in the muscle needs to be one of a reloading of glycogen of high insulin levels, of plenty of food coming in to prepare all that machinery to start turning and yielding new gains over the next several hours and days. So the ultimate thing to do if you're done training is to rest, relax, recover, and eat Specifically, higher glycemic carbohydrates with fast-acting proteins. That's how you get the best results. As you can tell, cardio after training does not allow for recovery of the nervous system. It continues to activate catabolic signaling mechanisms. And even if you, some people say, well, is it okay if I do cardio after, but I take my workout shake? Your workout shake is going to be burned up by the cardio. <laughs> it's going to come in and it's going to get burned up, and not much of it is going to go to the muscles you're supposed to be recovering. So uh, there's, a, there's a nutrient demand there that goes to the cardio instead of going to the muscles. Or at the very least, it's split partially, and then if it's just suboptimal. So I would say to the advanced individual, the first choice you have to make is what's more important to you, getting better at aerobic pursuits or getting better at weight training pursuits? If aerobic is way more important to you, then you probably need to do aerobic first and then weights after. If it's about if even importance, 
because weights are high intensity and aerobic is lower, and you can always do pretty decent aerobic effort, even if you're tired from weights, but not the other way around. You do the Alex Viata hybrid method, and you do weights first, aerobic second. If you are really interested in muscular developments and not so interested in being good aerobic athlete, I would highly advise to do your cardio either a little bit before the training session, not a lot, or just at another time of the day altogether. And I think the best athletes in that regard uh, do split sessions. So I never do my cardio in combination with training, almost ever. Um, and I almost always just come back four to six hours later after a couple of meals, after some rest, after relaxation, especially on legs. And on my hardest leg day, unless I'm very, very hardcore dieting, I don't even do cardio. I'll do legs in the morning and I'll do dick the rest of the day while I eat a lot. Um, so that's the situation that it takes to promote the best muscle growth. So just be familiar with the trade-offs. Be realistic. If it's 20 minutes of jogging after weights, whatever. You're, you're barely going to notice the difference. If it's serious kilometers on the track after weights, you will pay for it. You'll pay for it less if it's at another time during the day. So that's my, my best advice on the matter. Cool. No, I think that's really good because I think, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, you talked about kind of it all blunt muscle growth. It won't kind of necessarily take away from your current gains. And I think a lot of people do the cardio up like, and they're in kind of a dieting, maybe even they're in like contest prep or something and they do their cardio after their workouts. And what you're saying is basically that will kind of, well, that will blunt muscle growth. And because you're in that catabolic state anyway, because you're dieting, that could yeah, potentially lead you to lose muscle. Yeah, absolutely. And actually something I have heard recommended and I have, I mean, in the past I'd even recommend it myself, but I don't because I don't recommend high intensity training, uh, kind of interval training anymore, particularly for anyone is to do that hit after your leg workout, because then you've got longer to recover. Um, because obviously if you do it on separate days and it impacts recovery, um, I guess that kind of gets to the, the reason hit for fat loss is a lot of the time not worth it exactly and that's something i talked to jared feather about actually yesterday it was a real productive discussion oh awesome. yeah yeah hit training is not for advanced bodybuilders and advanced bodybuilders don't fucking do hit training they just don't and, and people are oh these are their bros they're stupid you try squatting 600 for reps twice a week and like pressing a thousand or whatever and fucking doing hit training when you weigh 280 fucking pounds it doesn't work um that's why they do lowest intensity and can put this in very technical terms the reason number one reason bodybuilders do low intensity cardio only they have a total mrv of training to fill up they're going to want to fill up as much as possible with one of two things things that fatigue very little but burn a lot of calories low intensity steady state cardio or things that build the most muscle slash retain the most muscle, weight training. So when you're a bodybuilder, you either train with weights or you do very, very low intensity cardio. Anything in between that range gives you neither the benefit of anabolism nor the benefit of a low fatigue fat burning state. High intensity limiter training is great, great, great for people who have only work out three or five days a week or maybe three days a week and they want to lose some fat and they don't want to be in the gym for forever. Three Weekly high-intensity interval cardio sessions, even after your workouts, totally great. You'll get into great shape. Um, if you want high-level results beyond great shape, if you, there's a very big difference between – and people conflate this on social media all the time, and it's not really anyone's fault. It's just sometimes the implications are lost. There's a huge conflation between excellent results for the person who is in recreational fitness and optimality. Okay, There's a really easy way to define optimality. It is when somebody hands you your third-place bodybuilding trophy. And you think back to what you did and you ask yourself, is there anything I could have done to take first instead? 
yes, then you are not optimally programming. But if you walk in, you have abs, you go to your, you know, if there's a summer party at your work and it's at the local pool or it's at, you know, at the ocean or something and you take off your shirt and you have abs and all your coworkers are like, fuck, you look amazing. Do you need to science the shit out of your training? No. Mm-hmm. You can just put in good hard work, a lot of hit training, and be very economical with your time and all as well. But uh, you're going to leave some things. There's differences emerge from those two things. Mm-hmm. So if I if I go to a co-worker's party and I pull my shirt off, people basically <laughs> get called. <laughs> of how, how happy are you? That's not a human being. So Amazing. Um, so I think the if people do want to do, like you said, the cardio on the same day, then it is to split it kind of those four hours so you can recover. The further apart, the better. Adapt. Yeah, perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, brilliant. So I think we have some more questions we can get to another time, which would be really, really good. And I just want to, again, thank Mike for joining us. And I want to remind you guys that this is only a taste of what you can imagine you'll get if you come to London on the 27th of May, um, where Mike will be presenting the scientific principles of hypertrophy and all that nitty gritty stuff that you know you want to know. Um, and that will be happening. So definitely check out the link below. Yeah, it'll be great, and we're going to talk about super, super advanced concepts. My recommendation for folks signing up is read the stuff that I've written about the volume concepts. I'll have more stuff coming out explaining that stuff soon. Um, read Scientific Principles of Strength Training is a really good idea. Some of the stuff we're going to be – you know, the, the regular stuff that we talk about, general recommendations, is not going to be the topic of this conference. This conference is going to be almost exclusively advanced stuff. We will not be defining MRV at this conference. If you don't know what MRV is, <laughs> don't buy tickets. <laughs> Do buy tickets, learn that shit, and then show up with really yeah. advanced questions because we're going to be taking it to the next level. Why? Because you get a bunch of free stuff for myself and Steve on the internet anyway. You can just listen to this podcast, the Q&A weekly stuff for free. You can read a bunch of books for, that I've written for very minimal amounts of money. You can read articles for free. We're charging you guys money for this, which means we're going to give you your money's worth. We're going to go right, very quickly ascend right into really advanced shit. So come with your fucking, I don't know, was your, or I was going to say reading cap, that doesn't make any sense. Your thinking cap, <laughs> right? Uh, make sure that you come ready for advanced stuff because it will be delivered. That's the, that's the big promise I can make. But on the other hand, if you're raising your hand every now and again and being like, so what's MRV? Uh, we will explain it to you, but then very briefly, and then we will leave your ass behind with other concepts that you're like, wait, what the fuck is all this other shit? If this is an advanced seminar. It's advanced conference, um, which is a huge benefit of it, but also make sure make sure that you're you're ready for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And that's you, you want that, and I think the audience will want that as well. So yeah, definitely sign up. And I may even email out all of these kind of the, the more basic concepts that Mike's come out with, I'll probably put them out on the email list. So anyone signed up to that, sign up to it, I'll send them out and I'll put all the links there as well because I think that'll be really helpful to everyone on there. Cool. Cool. Cheers, guys. Take care.